Star Wars Action News is brought to you in part by Brian's Toys. At Brian'sToys.com, you can find Star Wars toys and collectibles from 1977 to the present. Brian's Toys has it all, from vintage toys and action figures right up to the latest releases. And when checking out, be sure to say you were referred to Brian's Toys by Star Wars Action News. So go check out the world's largest selection of Star Wars toys at Brian'sToys.com. Listening to Star Wars Action News, your source for Star Wars collecting news, reviews, and updates, helping Star Wars collectors collect better. Be sure to check out our website at SWActionNews.com, where you can see photos of the items discussed, chat with other Star Wars Action News listeners, and much more, including information on how you can be part of the show. This is Marjorie. This is Arnie. We got a big show coming up today. I got an interview with Cross Current author, Star Wars Virgin author, recently divergenized Paul S. Kemp. It's a very special episode of Star Wars Action News then. Is that what you're saying? It's the after school special version? Because he lost his virginity? He did it once, and he wants to do it twice more. He's got two more books coming out. Oh, no, this will be a travesty. Actually, Cross Current, I really enjoyed the novel. If you haven't read it, you should. If you have read it, you probably ended the book with a few questions. I know I did. And you've got questions? Paul S. Kemp has answers coming up later in the show. We've also got a Hasbro Q&A, and we're going to talk a little bit about Star Wars projects real and imagined, from squishies to Star Wars in 3D. But to start, I have a little bit of a confession. <laughs> I almost cheated on Star Wars this week. Yeah, you've cheated before. See, this is a very special episode of Star Wars Action News. It's the Tiger Woods edition. <laughs> yeah, I'm like the Tiger Woods of collecting. It's not pancake house waitresses. It's toy clerks. I went to Meyer this week with Iron Man lust in my heart. The trailers just look too damn cool. And come on, ACDC doing all the music? Well, that wasn't the greatest thing for Maximum Overdrive. It works for <laughs> Iron Man. Yeah, it really didn't work for that, did it? So I was about to give in and buy some Marvel figures, and my wife had approved this. Actually, I did not say no. I just said, it's your choice, and I trust you. Heavy words. Yeah. So there I was. This is not my first rodeo with something like this, okay? <laughs> Come on. Did, remember the great... You've been doing this for 10 years. Yes. Remember the great X-Men tragedy of 2000? And one. Yeah, you did both years, didn't you? But, two, mm. th oh, yeah. 2000 was Comic the big books. debacle, and 2001 was the figures. Yeah. Yeah, I do remember both of those. Anyway, Iron Man figure in my hand. And then I looked at the price. I was at Meyer, so I wasn't like at Walmart where it's cheaper. But the, I'll tell you what the price was in a second. But let me tell you, if Star Wars figures ever reach this price, I'm out. Because not only did I feel that the price was completely unreasonable, I got angry. Like, who the bleep do you think you are charging $9? Okay, but you can't go to Meyer and buy the toys. That's the trade-off. Meyer is expensive. You should have gone to Walmart where they're $6.99. 
Nine dollars. Oh, I shouldn't have said that, maybe. <laughs> Nine bleeping dollars. That made me so indignant that I'm like, Nine dollars. And this isn't, I'm not talking one of those nice Marvel Masterworks, like six to eight inch thing. No, this is three and three quarter inches. Well, you're lucky you didn't go to Shopco. Twelve ninety nine because I know eleven ninety nine. Oh my god! There is they get you coming and going. There is a limit to what I will pay for three and three quarter inches of fun, and apparently that's nine dollars. I think we can go downtown, go to the train station, <laughs> and maybe take care of that for you. So yes, who's got nine dollars? Nine dollars? What will it buy me? So I'm back on the Star Wars only train, and Meyer did have some figures, and I bought them. Now, I have never seen the Yuzen Vong wave of comic packs on shelves. And the Yuzen Vong was gone, Darth Crate was gone, but I did find Luke and Lumaya, and so I picked them up in yeah, the I've wild. I've never seen this either. Lumaya comes with her light whip and interchangeable heads. I really think that if you were going to choose one head to have floating out there in space, I'd choose the one with the weird headdress instead of the head head, because it looks like a mannequin just kind of floating there. Perhaps it's the hairstyle comic pack. It is kind of a weird... It's a, dis- fuzzy, it's a fuzzy pumper edition. The thing is, it really should have a sticker somewhere that says interchangeable Extra head. heads. Yeah, because you're like, well, which one's Lumaya? Is it the headless one? What? I don't know what's going on. Who's the floating head? But then, you know, I don't think that that outfit really matches that hair either. Now, I got two figures for $13 versus one Iron Man figure for $9. I think I got a good deal. She's got a good dunk dunk <laughs> But yeah, they should have maybe included a little blurb about that floating head there because <laughs> she does have a bit of a gadunkadunk, but I think that's why she has the cape to kind of cover. Oh, a butt that. cover, yeah. Yeah. Everybody has a butt cover. The thing I like about the disembodied floating head is they really ripped off Terminator, like you the Arnold, you can see the metal through the skin. Well, yes. All over, in fact. Is she a robot? She's a cyborg. But I like it on the face because you see like the metal poking through the skin on the cheek, just like Arnold. I also found a Jawa with security droid. Now, I've found these before, but they're rare, and I finally got my third security droid. Did you get the rice farmer one? Asherod Het and the Tuscan? You know, I think I did. I, Why I, does he dress like a rice farmer with the big hat and his little rice beaten stick there? It's a lightsaber. Oh, in the small picture, it looks like a... I'm pretty sure we got them. I, I can't necessarily remember the blue-clad Tuscan, though. Maybe It I looks like Robert Downey Jr.'s outfit from Tropic Thunder when they go to the little heroin camp, doesn't it? I'm a lead farmer. <laughs> yeah. I hate that we have to edit this show. <laughs> I also, this week, completed a collection. Now, last week's show, we actually had to cut a bit out because we were talking about the Jake cards at Target and how I was needing the other four with the Easter kits, and they were full price when we were at Target on the Friday before Easter. Marjorie had a great idea, and this was cut from the show. She said, we should just go to Target at 8 a.m. and get these kits 50% off. And honestly, this this may say something about our lives, but Marjorie's been lamenting that it's been a long time since we've waited for Target to open Starbucks in hand. Yeah, I usually go to Target now at like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I kind of miss sitting out on the chilly spring morning with my caramel macchiato and listening to your crappy music on the iPod and having to skip over the audiobooks. It's amazing the things you miss. I know. It's kind of weird. I mean, I haven't waited for a store to open for a really long time, and I'm starting to really miss it. And I kind of want to go wait in line to get a Wii, but then the Wiis are all in stock now, and I already have a Wii. 
So I, I don't know. I mean, can we just go sometime and wait for Target to open, I guess? I mean, it'd make me feel better. So I, we, I, we recorded this whole part of the show saying, and here's our live report waiting for Target to open. Well, we would have been waiting a really long time. It turned out Target was closed on Easter Sunday. Yeah, I don't get that. Why was it closed? It was like Target was closed and Kohl's was closed. And, and Best Buy. And Best Buy, but then everything else was open. Well, Walmart never closes, but... I mean, Toys R Us was open. The pet store was open. Barnes and Noble was open. Yeah, what's going on? Why Target? So I decided to go and do this alone on Monday. I have a job where I can do these things and go in a little late. Marjorie could not join me though, so she didn't. Not on a Monday. Not on my job. Monday's hell day. Remember. So I went in and. The Target did have all Easter stuff 50% off, and they had probably 40 or 50 of the die kits. And I'm like... They didn't have those before. They didn't have that many? They had a full palette of them. I was there the day before. I mean, they had a whole palette of the Star Wars ones? Yeah. They had four. That's it? On Saturday, yeah. You told me they had plenty. That was plenty, I thought. (laughs) No, they had an entire, like, case that they must have pulled out of the back. It was brand new, full of them. And I I was stumped because when we were at the Target in St. Louis on the Friday before there were eight and i was going to get all eight just because i know and you carried them around the store and then we left them in like housewares <laughs> or something because they rang up at full price you left well, them right in front of the little stalker boy too <laughs> yeah he could take them back for me job so, security so when there was 50 i'm like well i'm not buying 50 at least not all at once <laughs> so, oh no 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 you're not buying 50 I wonder at what point I would have quit, but I was trying to decide how many to buy at 50% off, buck 50 a piece. I really want these missing four Jade cards, and I know they exist. I was questioning whether they actually existed, but Jacob, who is a co-host on Now Playing and done some segments on Star Wars Action News, he got the other four cards in his one pack. So I was like, they do exist. Maybe they were only shipped to California. So I decided to buy five packs, buy five packs, and then my plan is I'll take these five packs to the car, open them all. If none of them are them, I'll go back in and buy five more. How many times would I have done this, and at what point would the clerk have thought me insane? Only if Harry was working. Harry, no. So I get to the car, the very first pack I open, ta-da, the last four cards. And it's the most important one because it has R2-D2 and C-3PO. I like Chewbacca. I thought you'd like the Princess Leia because she's kind of spunky. I do like her. She's pink and... I do. You like pink because you're a girl. Way to stereotype my gender, Arnie. But you do like pink. I do. And you are a girl. I am a girl. So there you go. It is a known fact that I am a girl. Sorry to disappoint you or anything. Well, maybe that's good if I'm a girl because it would have been awkward now if I wasn't. (laughs) Arnie, there's something I must tell you. So finally, that collection of Jake cards is complete. And we've got so many Star Wars pencils now. And lots of egg color. What are we going to do with all that? We don't even do that anymore. We only did it for the show. We didn't do it this year because it was the same stuff they had before. You just wanted the cards. Yeah, huh? We'll find a charity to donate it to, some kids group or something, because we've got... Yeah, they want open packs of Easter egg coloring kits. I just thought they might want the dye. No, probably not. No? No. We can tie-dye shirts, because no, that you stuff can't. stains. No, you can't. It's not the same kind of dye. But it still stains. It's not the same kind of dye. I threw it on my sister's $40 Gap shirt when I was a kid. Why? Because I didn't like my sister, and it stains. So the sister you peed on? Why, yes, When it you is. were five? Yes, it is. To online news now... 
You know, I really mentioned on the show that I thought Mimobot was losing their thumb drive license because there was that other company coming out with the bobblehead-looking thumb drives. Well, I guess just now there are two of them because Momoko announced a new series of thumb drives and because it is the 30th anniversary of The Empire Strikes Back, the Mimobots are, of course, a new hope. (laughs) (laughs) You get R2-D2. I really thought they'd made R2-D2 before. But these are supposed to be the highly stylized ones. Okay, yeah, they did make an R2-D2 before in Series 1. Yeah. But this is Series 5 R2-D2. I like the Darth Maul because he looks angry that his head's a USB. Yes, but that's not a new series. No, I'm just saying I like him. I kind of like the Jawa, but again, they made the Jawa before, so it's nothing revolutionary, but they are cute. They're cuter than the bobblehead drives. Also at Star Wars shop, speaking of The Empire Strikes Back, they were doing that 12 months of art. Mm. Wow, did that go in a blink? Two weeks ago, it actually went up the first time and was gone before I ever knew about it. And I was going to like Star Wars Like sold out? Shop. Yeah. Oh. I was going to Star Wars shop every day looking for it around 7 o'clock, which is when they usually update. Gone before it ever had a chance. Now, this past week, they were back up online, and I was clicking furiously, add to cart, add to cart. Kept saying, there's been an error, cannot add to cart. There's been an error, cannot add to cart. This item is out of stock. So I think their servers were getting a little hammered. At $75, I was willing to go down that road. It would have been close to a 1000 all told, but I was willing to go down that road for the 12 pieces of art. But I didn't get part one, so I'm not even going to care. Yeah, I didn't have my heart set on it. And if you were on the Star Wars Action News newsletter, maybe you had a chance to get it when it was put back up. Star Wars Shop is weird about this. Sometimes they put things back online like that. If it comes back and we notice it, we'll let you know. But apparently... 100 was a very, very fine limited edition of this. Hmm. And one last note about the 30th anniversary of The Empire Strikes Back. You know, that is this year. Yes. You've heard about that, right? I've heard about it. Have you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Doing a lot of Empire stuff. We're going to have an Empire Strikes Back themed show, and we want your memories of seeing The Empire Strikes Back or The Empire Strikes Back collectibles. So give us a call at our voicemail, 415-508-JEDI, or send us an MP3 or a iPhone voice memo. Telegram. It has to be a singing telegram that will let me record it so I can put it on this audio show. You know, someone dressed as a bunny singing your memories to Arnie at work. Just send it all to show at SWActionNews.com or 415-508-JEDI. And maybe you can be part of our 30th anniversary celebration of Empire Strikes Back. Finally online, you know, we did a vintage segment last week, and the vintage really has people excited these days. I'm happy to see that, that people are really looking back as well as looking forward. I the I think the new vintage line of Hasbro figures has really reinvigorated people to collect vintage. Brian's Toys has a lot of vintage play sets that are really reasonably priced this week. They've got the Ice Planet Hoth, the Land of the Jawas, my favorite as a kid, the Turret and the Probot. These days, I think Probot sounds a little dirty. It does. But back that, then, I that loved that it was probing, a Probot. You know, probing has turned into a dirty word. and With the aliens and yeah. fire in the sky. Yeah, because there's really only bad places that get probed, and then that makes it sound bad. And, and Cartman from South Park. Yeah. So it takes on a whole new meeting now when you're interviewing somebody and you have to ask probing questions. But all of these vintage playsets and many, many more, Dagobah, available at Brian's Toys. And if you go to Brian's Toys and pick this up or join the Figure of the Month Club like we did, or not Figure of the Month, it's 
the one of every figure club. I, yeah. If it was only one figure a month, then I'd be having a lot more money. But Hasbro releases more than 12 a year. <laughs> God, wouldn't that be low stress if they did only do 12 a year? Can you imagine how easy that would be? Well, it's August. It's time for Dengar. Let's go. I think that's pretty much what Masters of the Universe does. It's online only and that one be, figure every once oh. in a while. Well, I'd like a regular schedule because I like to be regular. Anyway... <laughs> That's why you eat so much bran. Anyway, when checking out at Brian's Toys, please tell him how regular you are. Please be sure to mention that you heard about them on Star Wars Action News. We'll be back with a Hasbro Q&A after this. You want to know who Fred Krueger was? He was a filthy child murderer who killed at least 20 kids in the neighborhood. He wears a dirty brown hat. He's horribly burned. He has razors on his right hand. They burned him to death in his boiler room. When I was alive, I might have been a little naughty. But after they killed me, I became something much, much worse. On April 30th, A Nightmare on Elm Street returns to theaters and now playing is here to help you get ready for Freddy. Each week from now until the release of the new film, Stuart, Arnie, and Brock will be reviewing one of the films in the Nightmare on Elm Street series. From Freddy's first kill on Elm Street to his facing off with Jason and even his terrorizing Hollywood in Wes Craven's new nightmare. So head to NowPlayingPodcast.com now and get this week's episode where we review Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. As promised, we have a Hasbro Q&A this week. Marjorie, why don't you take question one? Gladly. While fans are very excited about the upcoming Celebration 5 Forlom and Zuckus 2-pack, they are concerned over the price. Do you have any indication of the price of this exclusive? Answer. Right now, we do not see this being priced above $19.99. So, my opinion is that means it's going to be $19.99. Or if it was at Walmart, $19.98. Exactly. But I don't think Zorro is coming to C5. No. It's kind of far for him to travel. Maybe I should costume a Zorro for C5. <laughs> I don't mean the Walmart Zorro. I mean like the Antonio Banderas Zorro. Just pick random costumes to wear to C5. <laughs> that would be fun, wouldn't it? Of course, you do get Klingons every once in a while. and Kapa. I'm actually not sure what they were priced at JediCon. Plus, there's the whole conversion rate. But remember, our own Ginger Prince is still giving away an autograph set of the Four Lom Zuckus 2-pack. Listen to last week's show to find out how to enter. Now, question two. Bravo on the new cloud car. Appreciating Hasbro's stance on less aggressive vehicles in the Star Wars line making for weaker choices as far as kit appeal goes, the pop-out cannons for the cloud car looks like a winner that makes both bases happy. However, with this vehicle's hopeful success in mind, might we see other less overtly aggressive movie vehicles made into plastic with hidden battle features in the coming years? For example, a Jedi never knows when trouble might jump out, so perhaps Revenge of the Sith Jedi airspeeders sported some concealed pop-up missile racks. 
or Uncle Owen, mindful of the ever-present Tuscan threat, may have installed an anti-personnel weapon of some kind inside his family's speeder. And who knows what concealed weaponry might burst out when more obscure vehicles like the Tatooine 9000, 2001, or Void Spiders are in sticky situations. Any chance of seeing these or other new vehicles from the movie realized in the near future, please? Answer. Good question. Overall, we do not plan to put more of these type into the line, as the cloud car is more of a signature commemorative item, and to be honest, will probably be the vehicle we'll be most cautious about when it comes to release numbers. We do like the Jedi airspeeders, and will say, with some risk as always, that there is a 90% chance we'll do this within the next two to three years. We like it because it's Jedi, have a unique Star Wars shape, and has some decent on-screen support. The land speeder is also going to return using the same tool from the previous release, Power of the Jedi, if memory serves. As cool as the Tatooine 9000 is, and we love everything Cantina, even outside, that's a remote long shot, but we won't say never. And the Void Spider will never do. Much better used for our tooling dollar. Now, I didn't write this question. This came from one of our listeners. Gee, I bet I can guess which one. And I was wondering about the Void Spider. Cause yeah, I asked you what that was. I honestly thought the Void Spider might have been one of the Separatist weapons, because they got all those spider-looking well, droids. they say spiders and void seems like something from the Clone Wars, doesn't it? Yeah, kind of. So I'm like, the Void Spider, if they'll never do a Void Spider, why would they not do an aggressive Separatist vehicle? So I had to go to <laughs> Wikipedia. An aggressive Separatist vehicle, as opposed to those really lackadaisical ones just kind of meander around they mosey yeah like count dooku's little speeder bike his wizard of oz speeder bike yeah where he looks like the he looks like the wicked witch of the west mm -hmm. that's not an aggressive vehicle no but avoid spider that sounds dangerous it does sound like it's going to be some sort of attack vehicle i agree so i had to look it up no i've never seen that i've seen a new hope more times than i can count i've never recognized this whether they said it was in a new hope i'm like where <laughs> really where <laughs> And it looks like the Apollo Lunar Lander. <laughs> and apparently it's sitting outside the cantina somewhere. So now I get why they said they'll never do it. Because really, that's obscure. Really? Yeah. There's a lot of obscure things that are made. Wilrow Hood. Wilrow Hood was at least in focus. <laughs> Not really, because they couldn't even get an in-focus shot for the back of the package from the movie. Well, always in motion, Wilrow Hood was. No, <laughs> it was probably just like a production assistant or something that got lucky now and has an action figure made of him. Does he even know is what I would like to know. Does he even know? Somebody needs to track down the real-life Wilrow Hood and find out. Who am I kidding? He's probably signing at Celebration 5. You're probably right. <laughs> Also, if you need more Hasbro Q&As, our sister podcast, Republic Forces Radio Network, also is doing a Hasbro Q&A now with all Clone Wars toy-related questions. Their first Q&A came out last week with the Bounty Hunters episode, so listen to hear that at republicforces.com. And now, as promised, we have the interview with Paul S. Kemp. Now, as always, a spoiler warning applies. We go into great, great detail about the plot of Cross Current. We go into great, great detail about the ending of Cross Current. So if you have not read Cross Current, listen at your own risk. Well, Darth Vader is Luke's dad. Oh, now you've spoiled that too. Yeah. And we're here with Star Wars author Paul Kemp, author of the new novel Cross Current. Hello, sir. Hi, Ernie. How are you? Doing well. Yourself? I'm great, thanks. It's uh, sunny here in Michigan. I'm driving home, smoking a cigar, and uh, enjoying the day. <laughs> now, I want to start with something I read about you 
I read that you had actually approached Del Rey about writing for Star Wars rather than Del Rey coming to you. I know some authors feel constrained writing in other people's universes. You actually sought this out. What was it about Star Wars that made it feel like a ripe storytelling universe for you? Well, first of all, as a matter of just sort of background, Star Wars for me has always been kind of a... I went and saw it with my dad in 1977, and it's just been a big part of my life, you know, as I've grown up. And it was kind of instrumental, I think, in turning me towards which is where I've written everything else previous to Cross Current. Sons are big into it now, too. My, my twin sons, who are five, love Clone Wars, so they're all about Star Wars. So, you know, that by itself would ordinarily have been enough to cause me to kind of seek out the property and try to write for it. But, you know, the fact that Star Wars is a worldwide cultural phenomenon, it's a touchstone that reaches across and through generations. So it's the kind of thing I think that really any author would love to write in. In terms of the feel of it, it's quite similar to the kind of sword and sorcery fiction that I've written in the past. So it felt right in that regard, too. What is it about Star Wars that makes you such a fan? Well, I mean, as I say, criticizing aside just sort of the general popularity of it, I, I very much like the, um, my background is as a, a major in political philosophy. So I've had a lot of exposure to sort of Nietzsche and comparing and contrasting that with platonic thought. And when I look at, you know, the Force, which is kind of the animating philosophy, obviously, behind Star Wars, and it touches on and feeds into essentially all of the stories that are told in the universe. The Force itself is just this perfect sort of device for storytelling in that it puts at odds reason and emotion. If you think about the Jedi as kind of like reflective and representing uh, on one pole reason, and you think about the Sith as emotional and representing on another pole emotion, or if you think about it in another way, and all of these are these kind of Manichaean dichotomies, you think about it in another way, if you think about it sort of you know, there's this kind of Nietzschean, they're all together, no moral facts. And then there's this kind of platonic, objective, good in and of itself on the Jedi side. You know, that kind of thing really draws me in my storytelling. And I've sort of explored those themes in my fantasy, my sword and sorcery also. But it's really made manifest in the Star Wars universe by way of the Force and the competing philosophies interpreting it. So that holds a lot of appeal for me. And I, I try to touch on that a bit as I tell my stories in the Star Wars universe. And we're going to get into your view of the Force a little bit later because I really want to go into depth about some of the themes of this book and some of the plot. Okay. The story you tell in Cross Current, was that an idea that you already had germinating when you approached Del Rey or did it come about later? came about later. I mean, I had some rough idea of the kind of story I wanted to tell, at least insofar as I knew I wanted to tell a story that featured a protagonist that hadn't been really explored in the fiction before. But in terms of the particulars of the plot, that came around later as I was noodling on the direction I wanted to take it. And the character who you picked up for this story is Jaden Kaur, who's been identified as the previously unnamed player character from the Jedi Knight Jedi Academy game. Did you pick him, or was somebody wanting to explore his character already? No, no, I picked him. When I was discussing with the editor from Del Rey the possibility of my writing for Star Wars, I said, listen, love all the characters, love the movies, love the stories that have expanded on the main characters and their families over time, but that's not the kind of story I want to tell. I want to tell a story that, that's a side story, really, and that features a protagonist that hasn't really been explored in the fiction before. So she said, okay, who do you want to write about? And I said, you know, I don't know yet. Let me take a look at all the materials. And she sent me a lot of materials, and I looked through all of those and and looked online and, and finally settled on Jaden. Now, why did I settle on Jaden? I wanted a character who was established in the lore in that, you know, he existed for the fan base. They would recognize the name. They knew who he was uh, in a rough sense. But 
whose psychology and, and the details of whose story hadn't really been explored before. So in that regard, he just seemed a perfect fit. You say that Jaden Kaur would have some name recognition. I actually thought it was you who came up with that name because when he was in the video game, he didn't have a name. No, no, it wasn't me. Okay. No, that was pre-established. Now, I don't know exactly where, <laughs> to be honest with you, but the materials that I read, you know, and that I looked over, he was already pre-established and named, established as a male in canon by that time, and, and so off I went. But that was about it, and that was the appeal. You know, he was really just sort of an empty vessel. Did you ever play the Jedi Academy game? You know, I'm embarrassed to say I did not. And you really flesh out Jaden Core's backstory. And I'm fairly familiar with the EU, but I, obviously there's a lot out there. A lot of what you wrote seemed like new information. I was wondering if you could clarify a couple of things to see if they're your own creation or if you mined them from your research. Okay, and you know, my memory on this may be a little hazy, so don't hold me to them. But I'll do my best. I know that the attack on Center Point Station was in the Fate of the Jedi series, and Jaden Kaur's name was dropped in Aaron Alston's novel Fury, uh -huh. but the specifics of his part in the raid that you talk about, spacing the troops and the civilians, uh -huh. was that your own invention? Yes. And did you consult with Aaron at all about the Center Point raid? No. Aaron and I did trade some emails, as I did with Troy and with Christy Golden, and all of this sort of mediated by our respective editors through the course of drafting, and particularly as we tried to connect the opening of Cross Current with some of the backstory associated with the Fate of the Jedi series. But I didn't consult with Aaron in particular on that, because it was just this one issue that was of enormous import for Jaden and his view of himself, but wasn't of particular importance to the battle as such. And this book you wrote is so steeped in the Star Wars Expanded Universe, the way you closely tie Jaden Core's storyline to the events in the Legacy of the Force series and the destruction of Centerpoint. You have, is it pronounced Sace? I pronounce it Sace, yeah. Sace. Kind of like S-A-Z-E, <laughs> phonetically. You have Sace's story tied to the ship Omen, which plays a big part in the current Fate of the Jedi series. Yeah. And you even have characters coming in from the golden age of the Sith era of the comics. Mm -hmm. How much of this material were you familiar with before writing, and how much came from research? The bulk of it came from research. W once I decided on the structure of the story and how I wanted to handle it, most of it came from sort of filling in the blanks. You know, I had a in concept, here's what I wanted to do with respect to, you know, these crossing timelines and, and these crossing, if you will, lifelines between this Jedi from the past and this Jedi from the future, both of whom are, are sort of falling. They're on a descent to the dark side. Their paths are going to cross, and the consequence of that crossing is that one of them will be sick while the other will be lost. Once I had all of that squared away in my head, then it was an issue of filling in some of the blanks with research. In terms of the specific connection between the fate of the Jedi and Cross Current form Omen and Harbinger, that actually was something that my editor suggested after I had submitted the detailed outline for Cross Current. I had at the beginning of Cross Current this kind of uh, relativity failure, this misjump as a consequence of the actions of the ancient Jedi. And I presume, you know, that they were obviously developing fate of the Jedi at the time. And she said, hey, wait a minute. There is a craft ship in, uh, that, that is part of the backstory associated with the Lost Tribe of the Sith. Why don't we make two ships at the beginning? One will misjump and essentially into your story. The other will misjump and crash in the past. And I said, that works fine. I, you know, it doesn't give me any. I thought it was great to be tied up with Fate of the Jedi in some way. Very similarly, you have Kedron Falls' backstory that's very tied to the events of Timothy Zahn's book, Outbound Flight. Mm -hmm. uh, was that, again, something from research, or was that suggested by the editor? No, that, that was something from research. And all of this comes from 
When I write a story in a, in a shared setting like this, Arnie, it's very important to me that I nest the story in the lore of the setting. It's what I want to do is, is have a story that's just some generic story that essentially could fit into any science fiction universe. I, I instead want something that's sort of deeply invested in the lore of the setting. And I try to, with my characters, really, uh, and I don't want this to sound pretentious, but I really try to get into their heads. Uh, and part of that is understanding what brought them to the point uh, where I'm representing them in the story. So you need to have some detailed sense of their history. And when you have that, that means you get into the lore pretty heavily and try to figure out a way to make the characters fit neatly into the lore and still have the kind of motivations that you want them to have. So in the case of Pedrin, it seemed perfect for me, since we're writing a story, you know, right on the border of the Unknown Regions, uh, I wanted to tie it back to Zahn's trilogy and some of those hooks so that, you know, fans like me, like you, can read the story and go, wow, that's 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 pretty cool that this all sort of feels like one hopefully seamless tapestry of stories that interrelate and connect in interesting ways. And, you know, since this was your first Star Wars book, I have to say, reading it, I thought you did a great job of that. It's always nice to see the callbacks, you know, kind of pay off for reading the previous books, uh -huh. as well as you did it in a way that if people hadn't, you catch them up to speed well. So. Right. No, and, and that's the other side of it is you, you can't be so deeply invested in the lore that the story suffers for it or that a relatively new reader or somebody not as heavily knowledgeable about setting this off. But, but yeah, it's, yeah, I agree with you. I feel the same way when I write, for example, my Forgotten Realms novel. That's also a tie-in setting that has a very lengthy history. So, you, you know, when I want to write, write a story there, I need to know very well the, the history associated with the areas in which I'm writing and then try to fit the story into that in interesting ways. And we talked about Kedrin. I thought Kedrin and Mar were very fun characters to read. Uh -huh. And they have kind of a Han Solo-Chewbacca relationships in some ways. Uh -huh. When crafting this very Jedi-centric story, what gave you the inspiration to include these types of characters? I wanted to include some, some important characters who are non-Force users because they can provide some, if you will, third-party perspective on the users of the Force. It's always, you know, Jedi and Sith interpret events through the lens of their particular philosophies, so that can get that can cause a kind of um, skewed view of reality, I think, that either one gets. And it, it makes for interesting storytelling sometimes, but it's also interesting to kind of come at that sideways with, with non-Force users who are thoughtful and have perspective, on the kinds of things that Jaden and or the Sith might do and, and bring that perspective to it. So in a large sense, that's the reason why I wanted to have those two in sort of just a small kind of tactical way. I really like sort of roguish, rakish characters who kind of just get by and sort of uh, uh, the gritty underbelly of whatever civilization they happen to be citizens of or engaged with. And, and so those two fit the bill for me. Also with Kedrin, you gave him a lazy eye. Mm -hmm. And that's the type of defect rarely seen in, quote-unquote, hero characters who normally are written as charismatic and handsome. Uh -huh. What was your reasoning behind that? Well, I like all of the characters I write to have a variety of hooks for the image of the characters to sort of connect with the reader's you know, inner eye so that they could see them more clearly, just particular things. So in the case of Kedron, it was a lazy eye and the fact that he's generally not a particularly handsome guy. Uh, I also was sort of taken with the notion that he thought of the lazy eye as allowing him to sort of see reality in a slightly different way, which is, you know, the, the, the notion behind his observation he makes a couple of times that he sees things slightly askew. 
So you'll see that in a lot of my fiction where I have characters who, you know, if it's, it's sometimes it'll be a kind of a, an odd mental perspective on things, or it'll be a, a kind, you know, in the case of Kel Vianza, for example, he's got this kind of religious, pseudo religious fixation on these Dane Nosy and this idea that there's some greater truth behind everything that he sees, and he just becomes absolutely obsessed with coming to that revelation and transcending his current existence. And that, of course, is ultimately his, his downfall. With that, the Anzots really are something not seen often in the EU. They come from a very old short story. What drew you to that species? Well, when I was doing the research, you know, I was just looking over a variety of the alien races and, and so on, and I had kind of in my head this idea about one of the minor antagonists that I wanted to have, a kind of subplot, more of a sort of symbolic or thematic subplot, really, is what the role of the Anzot is in the story. And when I read the entry for the Anzot, I thought, that's perfect. That's exactly what I want. So that's really it. Also in the book, you have the Lignin crystals, which are used by lightsaber crystals, by the Sith and the Fate of the Jedi series. Here you add the characteristic that they can amplify the power of dark side force users. Was this something that you created or was this, again, something in some background information about the Lignin? You know, this was something that I created for the, um, for the story. You know, the, the, the sort of the initial hook, the motivations of the characters in the past was that the Sith were carrying this kind of substance that potentially could turn the tide of, of the great hyperspace war. That was what motivated the Jedi to take a relatively rash step, Relin, the ancient Jedi, to take a relatively rash step of trying to take down this, this cruiser, this dreadnought on his own. As we began to intertwine the stories of Cross Current and Fate of the Jedi, as I mentioned earlier, with respect to Omen and Harbinger, then we had this this other thing, this crystal lignant. So we all, the authors, traded a lot of emails about how that was going to um, play out over time. So during the period of the Great Hyperspace War, when Says and his crew mined this moon for lignant, the, the notion then is this is material that, in its crude form, and attuned with particular dark side users, can augment their use of the Force, as we see Says do uh, in the in Cross Current. I think what the fate of the Jedi authors decided was that over time, because now we're talking about about many millennia that pass from the time that the, the sister ship Harbinger crashes, a sort of primitive Sith culture grows up and then gradually evolves on its own on this other planet, that they began to use the crystals differently and they actually used them inside lightsabers. And it wasn't so much that in its raw form it just enhanced the ability of a Darksider to use the Force and then burned out, but instead they found a way to use them in a, in a slightly more subtle way, which was to integrate them into their lightsabers where they would last much longer. And in the book, we see the Jedi Master Relin, you just mentioned, willingly accept using the dark side and using the lignin crystals. He embraces that power to defeat Says. What does the dark side and light side of the Force mean to you? Well, you know, as we discussed a little bit earlier, in the, in the abstract, you know, I see the two sides of the Force as representing, on the one hand, reason and emotion or, uh, if you will, subjectivism in the case of the Sith versus objectivism in the case of the Jedi. So, broadly speaking, they represent these opposite philosophical poles. You know, as a storytelling device or within the context of a story, you know, human beings are constantly moving between those two poles. I mean, the beauty of philosophers is that they just get to posit extremes and then test the logic of those extremes. But 
the way we all live our lives is to move between those poles and have to deal with the temptations associated with one or the other on a daily basis. So, you know, both Sith and Jedi struggle with their position on a continuum relative to either of those poles. So it makes for a kind of a, a nice storytelling device. And uh, although, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, Arnie, and, you, you know, you, you don't see a lot of redeemed Sith. You know, once you sort of go dark side, you never go back, whereas Jedi fall pretty regularly. So the temptation is strong for Jedi to move to the dark side, but it doesn't seem to run the other way. You know, I understand that the Jedi frame it as, hey, it's easy to move to the dark side because it's more appealing to emotion and, if you will, sensuality and so on. But but you would one would think that you would occasionally see the opposite happen. I know it has, but it's just quite uncommon. That might make for an interesting story sometime. Yeah, I, I think it was in the late 80s that it just became, from films and translated into other forms of fiction, more satisfying to kill the enemy than to, you know, send them to prison or have them be redeemed. Yeah, that could be. That could be. You know what I like about it, though, from the Sith perspective? If you're a Sith and you see that, you know, I was thinking about this in the context of one of the other Star Wars novels that I'm writing now. It really feeds into the notion that if you think about the evolution of a Force user, a Sith might be thinking in terms of, well, you know, as one evolves in terms of wisdom and their use of the Force and their understanding of the Force, one inevitably moves in the direction of the dark side, because that's at the pinnacle of Force use. That's why no one ever goes back, because once they're there, they're there. And that's why a lot of Jedi move on. It's actually just a continuing evolution along this. But the evolution only moves in one direction. It doesn't back up. Well, you also kind of touch on this in the book. You have Jaden reflecting on the teachings of Kyle Katarn, and Kyle said the Force is a tool, neither light nor dark. And yet uh-huh. you've got the Jedi, the overall more prevalent Jedi philosophy of there is a light side and a dark side, which is what led me right. to the original question is, you know, what's, what's your personal view on that? Yeah, no, the idea there is Kyle represents that subjectivity that I was talking about earlier, where individuals have to exist between the poles. So my thought in putting words in Kyle's mouth and in in Jaden's mind was that Jaden was struggling very much with his existence between the, I prefer to think of it more like between Nietzsche and Plato, between, you know, subjectivism and, and objectivism. And Kyle's words acknowledged that on the one hand, but seemed to lean in the direction of subjectivism. But ultimately, that's not his point. His ultimate point is that which Jaden realizes at the end of the book, which is, He's just one of those Jedi who's going to have to constantly struggle with this temptation. He's never going to reach a position where he's just, yes, this is an objective good. I'm sort of fully enmeshed in and immersed in the light side, and I won't be tempted by the dark side any further. I tend to think of Yoda that way. Jaden is going to be a guy who just struggles with doubt all the time, but recognizing that he needs to struggle with doubt all the time, and that's what keeps him where he wants to be, that was Kyle's point. When looking at Relin's fall to the dark side, George Lucas has said he sees the story of Anakin Skywalker becoming Darth Vader as a tragedy. And I think that's how it's been most often portrayed in the Star Wars fiction is it's a tragedy when somebody falls to the dark side. Do you see Relin's fall as a tragedy? I suppose I do, because I see it as a consequence of love, really. I mean, the problem that he has is that, you know, he had that you know, what amounts to a brotherly relationship with Saze when they were master and Padawan and lost Saze to the dark side. And this, you know, I, as I imagine it would for any Jedi master, gutted him. He was able to overcome that to some degree, although it's, it haunted him. And then when he ultimately loses his second Padawan, then that all of that feeling, all of that emotion that he had kept pent up and that he had 
as I frame it, tried to sort of sublimate by way of Jedi non-attachment, just it failed him. It came out in a rush, and he did what he thought he had to do at that point, and that involved for him actually embracing the dark side in an effort to sort of, in a way, strange way, kind of redeem his life by correcting one of the mistakes that he made in the form of saves. So, yeah, I, I guess that's tragic in a way. But also, from a very Machiavellian point of view, he saved the galaxy. He saved Jaden. I mean, if the ends justify the means, you know, it almost put a positive spin on the dark side. Well, it's meant to be, you know, I want it to be sort of complicated in that way. And I'm glad you're making that observation. You know, I, I didn't want the fall to be just some clear cut awful thing or some clear cut justifiable thing. I wanted it instead to just be, uh, I hope this doesn't sound trite, but I just wanted it to be a human thing. I wanted people to be able to read about what Rellin went through you know, we meet him when he's already on the edge because he's lost phase, and then when he loses Drev, then that just, I think to some degree we can all get behind that. You know, it's a bit like losing a child in a way. And Drev was deliberately, I don't want to say he was childlike, but, you know, he was in Escajian and therefore kind of uh, light-spirited, kind of joyous and so on. And, you know, that was meant to sort of drive home the point that in some ways Rellin was losing a child here, and that just, one of the human responses to that, I mean, if you think about someone who you hold responsible for, for hurting or harming your child or worse, killing your child, is is to take that kind of revenge. It seems justified in a way, and yet at the same time, the price to him was essentially to lose his soul, to sacrifice everything he dedicated his life to up to that point. And then, as you point out, in a larger sense, he still did some good. To change gears completely and go to something a little more lighthearted... You introduce time travel in this book, having some characters through that hyperspace malfunction travel from around 5,000 years before the events of Star Wars to 40 years after. Other than the flow-walking force power, which isn't really time travel, to my knowledge, this is the first instance of characters transitioning time periods in Star Wars. Uh, mm -hmm. do, you, do you agree with that? Is this the first time? It's the first time that I'm aware of, and I've read that in other places that it's, been, that it's the first time. So yeah, I mean, I agree with it within the limits of my knowledge, sure. Were there any discussions about letting time travel become a part of the Star Wars universe, or was there a fear of letting the genie out of the bottle, so to speak? Well, I thought of that, and we did discuss it. My editor and I discussed it some, but I think what mitigates that is that it's really framed as a non-repeatable accident. You know, theoretically, obviously, and everybody in the Star Wars universe and anybody versed in physics in our universe would know that, you know, if you travel at nearly the speed of light over a long distance, then relative to other observers who didn't travel at that speed, time will pass differently. So by itself, that's not a, you know, a revolutionary thought, obviously. It was when Einstein thought of it, but not when I did. So that by itself is not a big issue. So the, the, the problem then was how do you frame that occurring in such a way that it doesn't infect the universe with something that we don't want it to do. And so the way we did that was this was just, it was absolutely, utterly, and completely accident. A series of occurrences led to it that really are just non-repeatable in a lab environment or something along those lines, such that it's not some tool that, you know, one civilization or another is going to put the use or the weapon. It's just, it was just an accident. So, yeah, we talked about it, and, and we tried to frame it in a way that it would be acceptable, not create a lot of ripples for the rest of the EU. And you mentioned the physics discussions, and I'm not a physicist by any means. Yeah, me either. <laughs> so somebody out there right now is going, man, Kemp, it just doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. <laughs> Was it important that you try to maintain the scientific viability of that time travel? To me, it wasn't as important as it was to, I think, 
the internal consistency of the universe and some people who know more about physics than I do, who, who I was interacting with at the time. Because, you know, I thought, well, look, I mean, I knew basically my, my knowledge of physics is what I just said a few moments ago. That's it. That's all I know. But I thought, well, this has to be an issue that Star Wars deals with through relativity shielding and so on. Otherwise, all of the kind of travel that they have would create all kinds of odd time kinds of issues for the universe, and those don't arise, so obviously there's relativity shielding, or this is dealt with in some other way. When I initially proposed that one, I said there's an accident that leads to the cis ship getting propelled forward in time, but I didn't get into the mechanics of the how and the why. I just figured it would be a one-off accident. When we went further along in the story, when I was interacting with someone from, from Lucasfilm, he said, why don't we do it this way, because that'll give it some scientific grounding, and I said, great. And... The story as I read it, you know, you use the time travel to bring Relin and Says to the same area of space's core, but then you have no real far-reaching effects. You even have the characters kind of call themselves out on how little discussion was had about how the universe may have changed in 5,000 years. Can you go into the reason you chose to use time travel as the mechanism to introduce these characters versus, you know, there's, there's so many other pseudoscience you could have, pocket space, lost planet, etc.? Yeah, well, when I initially conceptualized the story and I thought about it as, um, as I mentioned earlier, these two Jedi, both of whom are in a descent. One is in a rapid descent due to the loss of his Padawan, uh, and the other who's kind of in this slow descent due to his being riddled with self-doubt and not knowing how to deal with that. And I thought, what I wanted to do, if we think about the Force as a kind of deterministic sort of uh, force, if you will, in the universe, what I wanted to do was, was imagine those two, the, the lines of their lives crossing and, and one of them being saved and one of them being lost. And, and that was the best outcome that could occur of all possible outcomes. So then I started thinking, well, if I want to have this kind of crossover, this kind of connection between the two, then how will I accomplish that? And it just, from a storytelling perspective, time travel appealed. There wasn't anything more to it than that. It just, it, I was taken with the notion that it, it would really be something if we assume that there's this deterministic force that's bringing these two Jedi together, if in fact that force has to bring one forward from the past in order to connect this one in the present in order to save one of them, even while losing the other, then I thought that gave it a little more drama. But there wasn't anything else more to it. And I know, listen, there are people who... uh, (laughs) The time travel issue, I realize, is controversial with a lot of the readership, for some people, it's obviously not an issue, and they dig on the book, and they, they enjoy it. And for other people, and there have been, you know, some, the, the mere presence of time. There are actually, I've read reviews of people who reviewed the book without ever reading the book. In fact, before it was released, who were just livid that there was time travel. So, you know, I, I know that it's it's an issue. I have to say, I really liked how you used it here. I thought the book was very entertaining. I thought it worked out well. I, as one of the fans, I do have that whole genie out of the bottle fear. But I thought, mm-hmm. you know, here it was done well. You know, it's like with anything. It can be done well or it can be done poorly. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. You do kill every person who came from the past. Was there a reason not to leave any time travelers in the quote-unquote present day to continue in your sequels or anything? Well, yeah, I think part of that, we wanted to have a clean break for all of the reasons that you and I have been kind of dancing around here. We, at the time, it was just a side story. I wasn't, we didn't know that it was going to be as popular as it proved to be. We didn't know that a sequel was a sure thing. And we wanted to make sure that we had left things about as neat as we found them. So it needed to be self-contained in the sense that I couldn't have a bunch of guys running around from the past, unknown regions. And the consequences of, of that might really 
you know, the, the genie might really fly out of the bottle then. So th- that's really all there was to it. Now, in hindsight, you know, if we had known cross current was going to be received as well as it has and sell as well, would we have done things differently? I mean, I don't know. Ultimately, that, that's an editorial decision. But I was happy to do it the way that it occurred. Because, you know, always Rellin was destined to die. I mean, that was his whole role was to actually sacrifice himself and, and, and to fall completely. But in, in the process, kind of possibly, even as he fell, redeem himself. That's the weird contradiction of Rellin. The ship was always designed to blow up and the, the remnants of the lignant to sort of infect the atmosphere of that moon temporarily as the escapees fly through it. Uh, the consequences of that will be explored in the next novel. You know, and then obviously Rellin was going to have his climactic battle with Saze, and Saze was not going to survive that either. So it was always the case and would have been the case even if, you know, my editor said, listen, if you want to have somebody hang around, that's fine. Just as I conceptualized and structured this story, none of them would have. Yeah, I wasn't thinking either Rellin or Saze. I was thinking, you know, like the first officer or some of those other minor characters yeah. you had in there. Yeah, and that, you know, fair enough. But, but no, we just wanted to make it clean. At what point did you find out there would be a sequel to this novel? You know, I don't recall exactly. At some point after I had turned in the draft, because they were, seemed to be very happy with the story and the writing and so forth. So we talked a little bit about then doing another book, and I said, I'd love to do a sequel to this one. And they said, great. So I didn't. That, that's about the sequence. I had turned in the draft. They had reviewed it, given me their thoughts for a rewrite. And at that point, we were talking about the next book, and, and I suggested the sequel, and that got approved, and there we go. So were any changes made to Cross Current as the result of there being a planned sequel from draft to final? No, almost none. One of the things, just as a matter of writing craft, is I take a great deal of pride in having very, very limited rewrites. So I really try to throw something over to the editor that's, that's darn near as perfect as I can make it. And, you know, even still, there are obviously going to be some rewrites, but they're usually pretty minor, and that was the case here, too. And I had I had already structured the book in a way, and I usually do this, where I have some plot points that don't get fully resolved or that suggest other hooks that I can use in the future. And that's that was the purpose of the end of Crosscurrent. Not its sole purpose, obviously. Part of it was just for Jaden to explore and to come to the realization that he came to, but I did want to have a hook for a potential sequel in the event that that opportunity was there. And is that hook, am I guessing right, that is the Jedi DNA clone lab? Yes, correct. And the escape clone. Yes, yes, because, you know, that loose end really cried out for a sequel because it got there. And, you know, when I'm reading, it was so close to the end already. I'm like, how is he going to explain? Oh, he doesn't. <laughs> no, that's right. You know, the the purpose of, I mean, again, I don't want to get sort of too deterministic or philosophical with regard to the force. But the purpose, cross current, broadly speaking, is really just about Jaden getting some closure on his character arc, if you will, getting from the point at the beginning where he is plagued by doubt and potentially falling to the dark side to the point at the end where he comes to terms with his doubt and is no longer at risk to falling for the dark side, at least as a result of his doubt. That's really the arc of the story. The clones themselves, you know, their direct role is providing the device by which Jaden comes to grips with that and also sees, I think, one of the things that he realizes and sees there is that there really is a dark and a light side. That Kyle's point was not that there, even though he used those words, his point isn't that there's no light and dark, there's no good and evil. His point is simply that you, Jaden, are going to have to navigate the real estate between those two poles, and you'll just never be, you're never going to be comfortable there but live with it. 
So that's what he does. And then, yeah, the escape columns are just hopefully a, the hook for the sequel. And in the book, you have Jaden encounter Alpha, a clone made from the combination of Jedi and Sith DNA. And you state he has a strong resemblance to Cam Solisar. Mm-hmm. Now, to fill in listeners who may not know, Cam originally had a backstory that was going to be told in a graphic novel, Lightsider, that was canceled. And so as it is, Cam just appeared in Dark Empire 2, having been found somewhere between Dark Empire and Dark Empire 2. The fact that his backstory is kind of fuzzy and the fact that you have this clone calling out that it looks like him, was that an intentional kind of hint that what we think we know about Cam's origin might not be the truth? You know, I have to be careful with the kinds of things that I can and can say about the sequel. But we did think a bit about the clones that we either, the identities of some of the clones that we suggested might be present. And then the Cam clone is the only one that we actually see. There are some that are arguably suggested by Jaden's vision, although he never actually sees those. So by way of answering the question, which I can't do directly, we thought a bit about the identities that we wanted to use, and there were reasons that we used the ones that we did. Will it be explored further in the next book? Yeah, it it will. I mean, the the clones will be uh, obviously an important part of the sequel. And throughout the book, you have Jaden really fighting with those light side and dark side tendencies, as we've discussed throughout this interview. It led me to believe at the end that we might find he was one of the clones from the station, perhaps with implanted false memories discussed in the book. Was that an intentional misdirect on your part? Am I reading too much into it, or do I need to wait for the next book to find out? Um, uh, yes, <laughs> uh, yes, and uh, yes. <laughs> it seems to me that there's a parallel thematically in this book between the Jedi Clone Lab and the Lignin Crystals, the danger of too much power. Was that an intentional theme? I mean, it was intentional, but it was always, frankly, it's kind of a minor theme. And what I really like to deal with is the psychology of the Force users. You know, too much power by itself, sure, the power corrupts absolutely and so on. But I'm really taken with this idea of these two poles, this sort of subjective situational ethics of the Sith or lack of ethics altogether with the Sith, and then the Jedi who attempt to sort of be these objectively good actors in all cases and adhere to their code irrespective of the cost. Those are the big themes that I like to explore. You can see it, you know, obliquely in Jaden's problem is, is sort of doubt. And, you know, his, his opposite, the counterpoise for him in the novel is the Anzot, whose problem, although he doesn't realize it, is certainty. So, you know, the Anzot represents thematically certainty to Jaden's doubt. And those are the kinds of themes that I'm really trying to get at primarily, although the one you point out is present, yes. My final question about Cross Current itself, the plot there. Mm-hmm. In the novel, you have Jaden flying an old Z-95 headhunter, which is, again, a great callback to the other EU, even way back to the 1970s daily Han Solo novels. But given that the ship was 50 years old, and I, I have to ask this, even though you have Kor call himself out by asking R6 this, but why did you pick a Z-95 for Core to fly? Two reasons. The first is, as you point out, that's what he flew way back when. So the question is, why is he still flying? And for the same reason that he refuses to give up his old lightsaber, he's had a very hard time, although he never acknowledges this formally in the book, but, but the purpose of both Starship and a lightsaber, actually I do think I mentioned it with regard to his lightsaber being this tether that connects him to the past. Everything that occurred before center point to him looks better than everything that occurred after. So he's very connected to the past, and it's just part of his psychology where he sort of hangs on to this point when he was kind of, um, I don't want to say naive, but doubt was not an issue for him, and things seemed much clearer. 
So, you know, both the ship and the lightsaber are reflections of that in his psychology. Plus, you know, frankly, I thought it was kind of neat that he'd be flying the same thing. And as you say, it'd be a neat callback for people who are into it. Now, I also mentioned that it's heavily modified. So technologically, it's much improved over the original model. But, but yeah. And you're now working on two more Star Wars novels, correct? A sequel to Cross Currents and also a tie-in novel to the upcoming Star Wars The Old Republic game? Yes. Old Republic will come first. And then I, I think Cross Current is slated for sometime in 2011, but I honestly don't know when. And then just a few closing questions that I ask to all the authors. Who shot first, Han or Greedo? <laughs> you know, definitely. I think you can read from the tone of my novels. Han shot, shot first. Although, in truth, you know, Han never would have entered the canteen. He'd have snuck in the cantina. He'd have come up behind Greedo, garroted him, dragged him out to an alley, left him there, and then been about his business. <laughs> In this book, you kind of got to have your cake and eat it, too. You wrote in both the really old Republic era and also the Legacy of the Force era. Which era of Star Wars excites you most as a storyteller? I find essentially all eras, and I'm not trying to just be politically correct here, but I find all eras of Star Wars sort of equally rich for storytelling. It's a really a fully realized sort of secondary world, secondary universe, and there are, you know, the theme of the two poles of the Force, obviously, runs throughout all eras. So I, I, I find them all equally rich, and I don't have a particular preference. And when you think of Star Wars, do you have more fond memories of the original trilogy or the prequel trilogy? That's a tough question. You know, I, I have a lot of childhood memories and, and young man memories of of the prequel trilogy. And, and that, so it's got this warm place in my heart. But I've rewatched uh, not long ago Revenge of the Sith and, some of, and the prequel trilogy. And Revenge of the Sith, those, those final scenes with at least you and McGregor anyway, th those are just great scenes with he and Anakin on Mustafar. And, and that, that, you know, so I suppose, because I, I just, I like the idea of these two who are essentially brothers having to, you know, engage in, in lethal combat because their philosophies have just bumped up against one another to such a degree that they, they can no longer coexist. So I suppose, I wouldn't say the entire prequel trilogy, but I would say I've got a, a a fondness for Revenge of the Sith these days. All right. Well, Paul, thank you very much for talking to us in such detail about Cross Current. I really enjoyed it. And to our listeners, that book is available now. And Paul, hopefully you'll come back when you uh, release your next ones to talk about those. Hey, you bet I will. Thanks, Arnie. I appreciate it. Thank you to Paul S. Kemp. And again, I highly recommend reading this novel. Brock did a review of it a few episodes ago, and I also gave it a read. I really did enjoy it. I'm anxiously looking forward to the sequel. Now let's talk about Star Wars on TV. Well, there's Clone Wars. We do a whole podcast about it called Republic Forces Radio Network. We're live every Sunday at 9 p.m. at republicforces.com. And you can be a part of that show by emailing show at republicforces.com and saying you want to be on part of the roundtable. The Boba Fett episodes are coming out. This is what you want to talk about? No. What I want to talk about is how every time I lose a show... Because I live and die by TiVo. I don't watch television like my shows live. I don't Your know what stories. I don't watch my stories live. I don't know what my stories are on, to be honest, except for Lost is on Tuesday night and V because I see the little blurb. But I don't know when any of my stuff is on. But every time I drop a show, either it sucks horribly or it just gets canceled. It seems there's another one taking its place. Now, I lost Ugly Betty this season. Actually, lose Ugly Betty next week, I believe, is the last episode. And we're losing Lost. And Lost. 
but it's immediately being replaced now by Star Wars shows. Oh, I wouldn't say immediately, Bob. That's true. We got a ways to go in that live action one still, right? But no, now there are four Star Wars television shows that are rumored, three of which are confirmed. We've, of course, got Clone Wars. And then this week it was announced that the creators of Robot Chicken, Seth Green and Matt Seinrich, who we've had on the show before, are creating their own Star Wars show, which is going to be a comedy show revealing the everyday lives of ordinary people in the Star Wars universe. So it's a reality show. Well, there is no reality in Star Wars. It is. It's Star Wars reality. I, I guess you could say that, but it's not like people are going to get voted off the planet or something. That would be funny. Robot Chicken is endlessly amusing. Mm-hmm. Years in, I'm still always happy when a new episode comes on. So the creators of the show give me hope. But then we've got Squishies. <laughs> the hell is Squishies? This has to be a bad rumor. This just, I cannot believe this. Now, I do know that Superhero Squad, which is the show based on the Marvel Galactic Hero type figures, is a huge hit. It's adorable, though. Kids love it. Adults love it. Marjorie loves it. No, we don't love it. We can't make it past 10 minutes because no. it's, it's loud and annoying. It is a very loud show, and I don't think that I could stand my child watching it if I had a child. It's Sunday morning. It gives me just this horrible headache. But I love the theme song. And I love Hulk. And I love Thor. And I love the Silver Surfer. So it's a big hit of a show. Yeah. And Star Wars, I guess, never wanted to miss a bandwagon. (laughs) The rumor is Squishies is a show based on Galactic Heroes style Star Wars characters. I just don't know if I believe it. That it's going to happen? Or that it's just not a cause you can get behind? Well, or it's not that it announced on StarWars.com. Yeah. A, so Where'd you hear it? It's all over the web. Ah. B, Squishies is not a final name. You know, I can see George Lucas looking at the figures and going, oh, they're squishy. But that's about as far as it would go. And maybe that would be a working title. But I, why would you not call the series Galactic Heroes? If the other one's called Superhero Squad, Galactic Heroes. Duh. Squishies? That sounds like a SpongeBob spinoff. Yeah, it does. And then, of course, there's the ever-rumored live-action series, which I finally found a real update on it. Nothing is happening. <laughs> They're still writing scripts. The whole thing about casting, not true. All those people who said they auditioned, not true. Really? Yeah. And who knows if they even said it themselves or if somebody just said they said it. Do You never can tell with, you know, just because it's on the internet doesn't make it true. It doesn't? What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. But that's a lot of Star Wars television coming out. Squishies, I don't know. When they tried to rip off Smurfs with a little show called Ewoks, it didn't do too well for them. (laughs) Gnap, gnap. We we watched that because you were terrified of that as a child. And finally, I wanted to post a link to an article from a horror website called bloodydisgusting.com. And the reason I'm talking about this on Star Wars Action News is this article is about post-production conversion to 3D. As I'm sure you know, 3D is huge in movies right now. It is? I don't think we get those, do we? We do. Oh, yeah. They charge you extra. Avatar was a big deal. and Kind of. Remember before we had all these 3D movies, there was all this talk that George Lucas showed up at Show West, and that's the convention where all the theater chain owners go, and the studios are like, buy X number of prints of our movie, and don't buy that movie, because the more theaters they're in, the more they monopolize, especially their opening week, and the more money they make. Well, Lucas showed up at Show West and showed some 3D Star Wars footage that blew everybody away, and then they looked at the price of digital projectors and said no, and Lucas said, well, until they get the digital projectors, we're not going to do it, blah, blah. 
blah, blah. Long story short, it's not just Star Wars. A ton of 2D movies are being converted to 3D and put out in theaters as 3D that weren't 3D intended, such as Clash of the Titans. The studios are realizing, hey, we charge 50% more for a ticket, so let's put it in these 3D theaters. And they spend, I think it's something like $5 million to do a post-conversion movie of a film intended to be shown in 2D and make it 3D. And it's not the same as a film envisioned, created, filmed, and or animated in 3D style. Post-conversion to 3D bites. And if they do it to Star Wars, it's probably going to bite as well unless they re-render every scene with CGI and redevelop all of the Death Star fight and everything the way they did for the special edition, do it all over again in computers and intend it to be 3D this time. We'll be 80 by the time they get done with that. Yeah. And then we'll be onto something totally outrageous and... It'll be a relic. On last week's show, when reporting from JediCon, Ginger Prince said that Sansweet wouldn't comment on Star Wars in 3D. And this makes me hope that after seeing Avatar and things, George Lucas realized if we take a 2D movie and convert it to 3D like they did with Clash of the Titans and some of these other movies, it's not going to live up to what people expect. Because with Star Wars, people expect the best. Mm -hmm. And when you envision and film a movie with the intent being 3D, you're going to get something out of it that you're not going to get if you just, to quote this article, article that you can find a link to on StarWarsActionNews.com. It has all of the 3D of a pop-up book where you've got one thing in front and one thing in back. It is not true depth. It is lame. So I'm really hoping that they don't do Star Wars in 3D. Read this article. And honestly, per this article, I encourage all of our listeners, don't support post-conversion to 3D. If a movie was shot in 2D, don't pay the extra money to see it in 3D because you're not going to get that much out of it. I hear some theaters, even the ticket clerks, are encouraging people to see the 2D version and save the money. Really? You probably just want to save the money anyway not see Clash of the Titans from what I've heard. I've heard mixed things, but I'm, I'm saying that's the most recent one that comes mm-hmm. to mind but there's a whole list of movies past present and future that are being converted to 3d at the last minute but that's not how they were i'm holding designed. out for weekend at bernie's to come out in 3d just imagine that dead body in 3d what they could do with that they need to resurrect that series if only so we could do a weekend at bernie's retrospective at now playing i'd totally be down with that i have a lot of problems with that movie that is our show for this week I still don't have my tadpoles, but I'm hearing lots of stories that it takes a few times to get them because they arrived dead. That could have been a winter thing. Yes. But I still haven't gotten them yet, but we will have a frog cam as soon as they are here. We'll be back next week with a review that we had intended to do this week of the Uncle Milton binoculars and a review of the Force Unleashed Vader's Secret Apprentice mini busts. We'll talk to you then. Thank you for listening to Star Wars Action News. You can find even more Star Wars coverage at our sister podcast, Republic Forces Radio Network, where we review each episode of the Clone Wars cartoon series. You can find that show at republicforces.com. If you're into Star Wars novels, check out the Star Wars Action News Book Club, where we read and review all the Star Wars novels. That podcast is at SWActionNews.com. We want your feedback and suggestions for Star Wars Action News. You can email us at show at SWActionNews.com or post your thoughts in the Star Wars Action News forums at SWActionNews.com, the most friendly forums on the web. 
You can be on Star Wars Action News by calling our voicemail at 415-508-JEDI or sending an MP3 or iPhone voice memo to show at SWActionNews.com. All materials submitted become the property of Star Wars Action News and are subject to use on our show. You can help support Star Wars Action News by using the affiliate links on our homepage when shopping online. We would also appreciate it if you spread the word about Star Wars Action News by posting about us on Twitter, Facebook, MySpace, or just tell a friend about the show. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a review on iTunes, and you can also cast a vote for us each month at Podcast Alley. Links to both can be found on our homepage at SWActionNews.com. For more Star Wars collecting, please visit yakface.com, hanshideout.blogspot.com, and jedi-temple-archives.com, and we thank those sites for their support of Star Wars Action News. Star Wars Action News is created, produced, and hosted by Marjorie and Arnie. The Star Wars Action News team is web programmers Jason and Joe, associate produced by Brock, reporters Jerry and Steve, graphic design by Chris, and podcast enhancement by Berent. Star Wars Action News is copyright 2010, all rights reserved. Star Wars Action News is not affiliated with Lucasfilm Limited. The show is created by fans showing their love of Star Wars. Star Wars and all the Star Wars universe contains is trademarked and copyright Lucasfilm Limited, all rights reserved. Until next time, may the pegs be stocked and the Force be with you. Star Wars Action News. Now this is podcasting. Star Wars Action News is a production of Venganza Media Incorporated. I love how you Wayne's World the beginning of the show for me every day when we start. <laughs>